the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology. Proactive and strategic IT. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. We're at episode 394. I'm Paul Spain. Uh, I'm Gerald Masters. And I'm Susanna Winger. Welcome to the show. Great to have you both Thank you. here. Thanks. Now, since it's the first time on the show, um, Susanna, maybe you can fill people in on where you fit into this big wide world of technology in New Zealand. Sure. So I head up the uh, brand marketing and comms for uh, Network for Learning, um, looking after all of our communications out to all of the schools um, and where we operate and engage with schools with regards to the managed network. And that's the internet connection through into the schools. That's good. That's good. And Gerald. So uh, I'm also at Network for Learning. I head up the innovation team at the moment. So looking at uh, all the forward-looking products, what we can do future for schools and how we can better use internet uh, capabilities and keep things safe and secure for all the students out there. Excellent. Oh, that's good. Well, we're looking forward to diving in and hearing uh, a bit more about Network for Learning during the show. Um, first up, the news uh, bites and bits and pieces to uh, chat through. Uh, Rocket Lab. This has been uh, it's been fun over the weekend. Looking forward to Rocket Lab launching, and then they didn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think uh, we we're getting used to the fact that these launches don't often happen on the the first scheduled date, aren't we? Yeah, yes. absolutely. Uh, I'm I'm hoping that things will will get a bit smoother because with the sort of the launch schedule that uh, Peter Bex talked about for for Rocket Lab, there, you know, ultimately, you know, wanting to be able to launch something like every three days uh, at some point in the future I think their goal this year is sort of once a month so yep. you know we, we're uh, we, we're heading towards that but it's going to take a little uh, a little while to uh, to get to that it's always exciting though isn't it any any rocket launch um, and it's a good thing for New Zealand yeah. to be able to get into that into that space excuse the pun yeah <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it is pretty cool. And um, uh, my son Pablo, he's uh, uh, seven, and he was asked at, at school to do a project on on a Kiwi who's persevered. And so, um, yeah, he's been looking at doing that on uh, on Peter Beck. So we uh, we drove drove out to Rocket Lab, which is only uh, only a few minutes from our house. It's uh, you know on the motorway, it doesn't take too long to get to get out there. They're just near Auckland Airport. Yeah. And so uh, yeah, he was he was very pleased to be able to have his photo taken and. Hmm. In front of um, an electron rocket that they've got there, you know, right outside nice. um, their their New Zealand HQ, which is, is yeah. kind of cool. It is indeed. I think um, the I've never been there myself, which is which is probably a bit of a failure because I should because I'm super interested in it. I always thought it'd be good to go go watch a space shuttle launch uh, back in the day, and now I'd probably go watch a, a, a SpaceX launch at the moment as well. But closest thing to home, let's go watch let's go watch a, a Rocket Labs launch would be just be unbelievable yeah something so different for New Zealand and I think that the world's your oyster and I think you know it teaches so much to everybody else out there it kind of there's a star up there and you can kind of go for whatever you want to yeah, I mean, I sat down with him a couple of weeks ago for a with Peter Beck a couple of weeks ago for a chat, and yeah, look, his just his absolute focus and what he's been able to achieve is is amazing, mm-hmm. and yeah, I think it'll be very interesting to see um, yeah where where things head from here, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it does seem as though they're very much uh, yeah at the forefront of what they're doing globally. There are lots of other companies around the world that are you know, trying to focus on this idea of of putting these satellites up into low Earth orbits and and so on. You know, being quite different to what SpaceX are, are doing with putting, you know, much much bigger yeah. payloads up. 
drop into into orbit for much higher costs yeah. and uh, this idea of you know, putting things up regularly so I hope it goes well uh, if it's not Wednesday I hope it's Thursday or Friday <laughs> and it happens very soon <laughs> the weather will get better yeah, yeah. let's hope so got to <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and um, Peter Beck has also been uh, been recognised uh, in the what are they called the um, uh, world class um, Kiwis uh, Awards, which is run by uh, Kia. So uh, um, I, I think he's probably got a, a fair few awards coming. In fact, I, I, I often um, um, try to put Sir in his name because it just seems <laughs> like that, that, that's, that's, that's where he's that, heading. It's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's just like. It, it, it already seems like he should be Sir Peter Beck, but um, I'm, I'm sure that will that will happen in the in the future uh, <laughs> if we if we keep with that um, that particular uh, system. Who knows with um, politics? Um, now on to on to another topic. Uh, Intel now. This uh, prob- probably caught uh, you know, most most people by uh, surprise who who you know follow Intel is that their uh, their CEO has just sort of stepped down rather uh, rather abruptly, and um, I, you know I guess as as a you know as a company the last few years have been a lot uh, tougher for them than uh, probably the the previous twenty years or or so where they had such a dominant. Uh, position. I did. I've got to admit, I did make a mistake quite some years ago when it looked like AMD were really going to be, uh, you know, able to uh, able to dethrone Intel. And so I went out and I bought some AMD shares. Hmm. And it was just shortly before uh, Intel got got themselves sort of back into gear. Yep, yep. And so all my AMD shares uh, tanked. Oh no! Um, <laughs> but did you keep them? <laughs> No, no. <laughs> I was just like, "That's it." I'm out. Um, whereas I think AMD now are, are yeah. you know, coming into a, into a well, even Intel uh, saying you know, that they're going to lose some market share, aren't they? Mm. They're saying the AMD stuff is well. Intel's basically missed the boat a little bit. They're still getting a lot from PCs and server, but they're missing the whole mobile revolution. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, and and look on um, on on that front, and um, there's there's. There was a you know particular reason why um, Brian uh, Kazanich um, stepped down. Apparently, some uh, relationship that was not in line with um, company policy. Policy, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I did see something else today suggesting there might have been some other other reasons behind uh, that as well. But you know, re- regardless of um, of the reasoning. There is this uh, challenge that we that we have, I think, in a, in a lot of uh, businesses today, to do with leadership of of the firm often being quite focused on the the short um, you know short term goals and returns, making sure they get the bonuses and and so on. And uh, I saw something today around a, a new uh, stock exchange that's uh, being established. Uh, with a focus for a much longer term uh, view and encouraging, uh, well, I think in fact maybe this may have been part of their structure, is that the companies don't give annual financial guidance in the same way most businesses do today. So it sort of it takes that pressure away. And you know, I know there was there was uh, always a lot of uh, pressure on uh, Rod Drury here in New Zealand with zero along the way of you know when are you going to be profitable? Yep. You know when are you going to show the you know X Y Z numbers? And you know his pushback was always, well, we're taking a longer term plan. We're looking at the bigger picture, and you know we're we're not just focused on on getting to profitability. Uh, 
quickly. So I'm, I'm kind of curious what uh, what approach Intel will, will take once they find a new uh, leader, and you know whether they can really get themselves you know back on track. Not to say they don't have you know some some very good and very capable chips and and products, but they you know they've been looking in all sorts of directions, and uh, you know certainly on the smartphone side of things, they've uh, you know they've, mm-hmm. they've not been successful, and that's such a huge part of the market right now. Yeah, they could, they could always go down the Dell model, right? Where I can't remember his first name, but the CEO of Dell, um, Michael Dell, Michael Dell, yeah, yeah, went and bought all the shares back and made it a private company again. So he didn't have to listen to shareholders and worry about returning returning value to shares, mm-hmm. and he could position the company where exactly he wanted it to go. Um, it was a pretty brave thing for him to do, and he's still around, so it must have worked in some way. Yeah, but, um, yeah. Or maybe Intel's too big to do that because they are massive. I don't think anyone would be able to afford to buy it themselves. Yeah, um, yeah, that would that would be it'd be an interesting uh, interesting uh, prop, proposition. Mm. It's, uh, it's certainly one approach of being able to get away of having to uh, you know be be focused on those short term yeah. uh, results. Because didn't even don't want to get political, but Hillary Clinton came out with one of these comments uh, during the last campaign, I think, about how uh, American companies were all too short term focused, and we need to find a way to let boards and CEOs get long term. Because um, all they're worried about is shareholders going, you, you didn't give us enough returns this year, so we're going to sell all your stock, and then the shares will drop, and then they'll get kicked off the board, and they'll hire somebody else to run the company. Yeah, um, it's always finding the balance. I think it's even in a business, you're finding the balance, whether that be, um, you know, the company with the board or just the, within the company itself, the balance of how much resource you invest in the now and how much resource you invest in ensuring that you're still in now, there is still a now. In you know three years, four years, five years time. That's right, and it's not it's not easy, and you can't get you know you can't get it right all the time. No. Um, so yes, it's uh, I guess it's fun to watch from the outside. <laughs> I don't have any Intel shares, so I have no uh, I have no stresses there. <laughs> um, but look, I, you know, I think it, it it's you know important for the you know broader technology industry that these companies do get things right and don't mm. you know make make a mess of it and look certainly on um you know on the front of the the chips that we're seeing in our laptops and pcs today you know and intel are still doing a, a pretty good job but it's nice yeah. to have amd um you know putting some pressure on them as well yeah, finally yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah uh now on to ebay this is um ebay plus i wanted to talk about and I'd, I'd missed news of um, of eBay uh, Plus being a, a a thing that was almost relevant to Kiwis. <laughs> so, um, but I, I saw a news item uh, la- last week in uh, Lifehacker talking about um, eBay Plus, and this is an offering from eBay in in Australia. And of course, we go back quite a few years ago. You know, eBay, uh, you know, I think tried to get into the New Zealand uh, market, and you know, of course. We know that uh, they had some pretty stiff competition, so they, they haven't had a massive focus on the New Zealand market. But certainly in Australia, uh, they are now looking to carve out, you know, even more of a slice than than what they've got. Personally, I use eBay quite a lot. I don't tend to use TradeMe for ordering uh, things very often. Mm. Uh, I find e- you know eBay is quite good, and it's you know you order something it comes from China, it's free free shipping in a lot of cases. Um, 
more to choose from. And yeah, there's a there's a big selection, but it depends what you're what you're buying, right? You wouldn't mm. probably uh, be buying a car off eBay in New Zealand, no. um, but plenty of people will buy you know cars off Trade Me. Yep, uh, good place to buy houses too, or at least yep. to, to find them. <laughs> um, I think you probably would step inside the door first <laughs> in most cases. Although yeah, I hear so. there are there are there are cases where that doesn't happen from time to time. Um, but this eBay Plus, it looks like a um, sort of compete with Amazon Amazon Prime, and so you pay a, uh, a fixed fee and then basically get uh, free domestic delivery in, well, in a lot of parts of Australia um, and returns on a, on a list of eligible products. So Amazon is quite similar in that not all of their products are, you know, are, co- are covered by the Amazon Prime subscription, mm. uh, but they do have a massive range that, that are. Um, and, you know, I use that a, f- a fair uh, you know, a fair bit, and I've had a Amazon Amazon Prime subscription, you know, for a reasonable time because I spend you know chunks of time in in the US. So um, having that subscription just means you can order stuff, and you've also got you know the other things they throw in with it in terms of music and uh, um, movies. Any any thoughts on this? Are we being left in the cold, not getting this as uh, as as Kiwis, or is this just a reality of we're a little country with a little population and no one's ever going to offer it here? Yeah, I think there's probably an element of you know size. It always comes into it with New Zealand. Um, I do think though that there's a opportunity to go into Australia and understand that market, understand how big that demand is and then if they get to the economies of scale then they can kind of expand it from there it's I guess the central hub for down the side of the world that that's what they see Australia to be in this instance so I think I'm going to watch and wait to see kind of how much of a success that is and I think if it grows at that point then it might, fingers crossed come, uh, come this way mm. Or we just become another state of Australia Oh no shipping. we don't want to do that and We'll get shipped out of Sydney <laughs> No, um, for shipping purposes only. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we 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 would only want the benefits of that. (laughs) I was overseas for a while, so I sort of missed the whole trade me revolution, and um, I didn't realise eBay actually tried to launch in New Zealand, which was. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much that they tried to, but I remember signing up to eBay. You know, in those very early days Mm. when when eBay was trying to basically grow out into all the countries and. Yeah, they just, I mean, they didn't have much success in no. in, in New Zealand, but I can't, rem- you know, I don't remember where, that, that they actually set up a base here or anything like that, but yep. they were certainly trying to take over the world, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, but they, they'd they made very little traction, I, you know, I think yep. because of Trade Me. Um, I'm, I'm more of a bricks and mortar shopper anyway. I'd rather go to a shop, like especially when you're buying clothes, you want to try them on, you want to make sure it's actually what you want. I do buy some stuff online, and you're right, it's all off either Amazon or eBay. Mm. I don't get, I don't buy much at all from Trade Me, but if I have anything to sell, I sell it on Trade Me. Right. Um, mainly, mainly it's because the things I'm buying, I guess, are things that I want that aren't in New Zealand that I can't get. You know, um, really, really random things that you need to go online for to find. I won't go into the list of them. Yeah. No, I'm a good one for going into the store and then Google searching on my phone and understanding whether or not there is actually something that's better priced out there. I can buy it cheaper online. And then as long as I've tried it on, particularly shoes. Particularly yeah. shoes. That's interesting because I buy a lot of stuff um, from some stores online from Australia, actually, when I think about it. And some of it's like running gear, exercise gear. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they do free deliveries to New Zealand. Yeah, a lot of them do. So you're, you're buying it for cheaper than you can get from a shop in New Zealand. And then getting free delivery to your door with easy returns. So, yeah. who's the retailer that does that? Does that? Uh, they're iconic. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah, that's huge. I think, yeah, and and those sorts of opportunities—that's what changes people's buying habits, right? Mm. And uh, yeah, I think we've had uh, some of our retailers in New Zealand selling into Australia as well, especially while there wasn't uh, any GST being charged on it, (laughs) and so the New Zealand retailers were getting that unfair uh, sort of advantage and uh, being able to, you know, slip products in under the under the radar. And of course, in Australia, I think it was. Either a thousand or fifteen hundred was the yeah. was, was the level, whereas you know here at you know four hundred four hundred dollars uh, being much lower, but actually an opportunity to sell you know, a fair bit of product into Australia. But uh, it's interesting that changing. because the last stuff I bought from the iconic, I was buying a couple of you know running uh, jackets, and it said at the end, you know, this is you know over two hundred dollars. You probably get charged duty when it ri- arrives in New Zealand. So I was like, well, I'll buy them one at a time then. So I bought them in- individually instead. So they came, you know, as you said, under the radar. Yeah, and look, I think it does. It does at the moment create some confusion for people. You've got Dick Smith, who's a brand that yeah Kiwis were familiar with. Uh, they that brand got absorbed into Kogan in Australia, which is sort of trying to be a, a bit of a, a an Amazon type you know e-tailer. And um, when you go and order product from them, if you're not careful in the fine print, I know a lot of people have been you know tripped up. They've missed the bit that says, oh, you might get charged you know import yeah. fees. And certainly in my experience, if you get something that goes over that threshold it's not just the GST you pay you know you've got this yeah GST maybe a hundred dollars or so just to go through that whole uh, process mm. so you know it gets pretty expensive with a courier so if you order something for I don't know five hundred dollars then it might end up costing you you know 650 or yep. you know something a lot more than just the GST components yeah so. I brought a couple of books recently from Amazon actually and used the New Zealand Post service that you can I bought them out of America you shop yes I sent to an address in America and I was I did it mainly because I wanted them and B I did it that way to try and figure out if it was a cheaper way of actually delivering at home or whether it's just cheaper just to get Amazon to post it directly to you and to be honest I haven't actually gone back and looked at the difference <laughs> I've got a post-it note sitting on my desk somewhere with the, what the original quote was from uh, oh, interesting. from Amazon for, yeah. the, for the delivery to the home and I need to actually go back through all the charges I had to um to see which one was better <laughs> i i think usually it was only about us- six months ago usually uh if if amazon will ship to new zealand then they're shipping usually quite reasonable mm. but they have lots of things that you can't ship to new zealand so you're, you're forced to go through those channels if you want that item which yeah. you know of course is probably um you know causing some some slight disruption on yeah. the new zealand you know distribution channel or something but you know all of all of these things do to a uh, to a degree it's just that convenience being able to go onto mm. these platforms find what you want hit order and you know know it's going to be on mm. on its way i was sort of hoping as well because i did buy two different books or two different items at one those books uh, at one time and i was sort of because when you buy them at different times obviously it'd be two different parcels coming and i was thinking if i can get them to the u-shop thing and then get them sent back as a single parcel that would then be cheaper and i can't remember if it was or not still like i said i have to figure that one out still (laughs) it's like the uh the exchange rate challenge it offers (laughs) you know you're buying something online it offers you in new zealand dollars yeah or the or the original currency and usually it's better to pay the exchange rate through your bank but um that that will change at some point and we might not I mean, it's it's uh, splitting hairs usually at such small amounts. Um, on on that front, a friend of mine ordered. It was either a barbecue or a lawnmower from Amazon when they were shipping loads of stuff to New Zealand. And the shipping on it, I don't know whether they marked it up or whatever, but it was really cheap. So 
and then I think they stuffed something up and it took too long to come and he ended up getting the whole thing refunded so uh, and, and then he, and then it arrived and so um, so yeah bonus um, those are the yeah. unfortunate stories <laughs> when, when it hasn't arrived so you ring them up and say it hasn't arrived yet and they say sorry and send you out a new one and then the original arrives the yeah. next day oh well um, and and I guess that's why Amazon hasn't been known to make uh, huge profits because they're they're so committed to building up their customer base and having incredibly happy customers. Yeah. So they, they can be yeah, they can be somewhat generous at times. Uh, now, other news: Apple were um, fined last week nine million dollars for uh, misleading Australian uh, customers. Now, this is interesting because there's um, you know there's there's two sides to this. There's obviously what's happening in, in Australia, uh, and then there's a New Zealand side. And um, in in this case, um, it was to do with I think um, complaints over iPhones and iPads that were getting uh, d- disabled um, after an update. And um, you know, there's a few bits and pieces there in terms of the uh, the news story uh, that that the Herald and and others covered um, locally. In fact, I think in the Herald's case, they may have just pulled a new story off an Australian uh, site <laughs> as is as an as is often the case uh, such as uh, globalization and so on um, but there's the New Zealand aspect and uh, also w- was reading about um, that side and seems that there are a few complaints around the way Apple operates with replacing uh, devices if you have a, you know, a faulty iPhone normal manufacturer they will come in and you know give you a brand replacement if they can't uh, repair it that's that's brand new but uh, Apple seems comfortable with dishing out refurbished uh, or secondhand devices as uh, mm. some people would call it so any thoughts on uh, Apple's Apple's approach because I think generally Apple have a pretty happy uh, customer customer base oh yeah I'm, I'm an Apple fanboy I have every sort of Mac thing you can apart from Apple Watch I don't have to be honest um would I be happy with the refurbished? I probably wouldn't be. I'd, you'd expect if something was faulty, you'd want it replaced with something that was brand new and unfaulty rather than something that somebody else has sent back, which could have been faulty in a similar or different way. Um, yeah, I'm not a big fan of this isn't working, give me something secondhand. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, I know that I bought my Apple, I'm also on Apple, I originally bought my Apple iPhone over in Australia and bought it at an Apple store. Um so their expectation is that you go back into that store if something goes wrong. There's not a huge... It's not like they're like a corner dairy and there's a whole heap of them. There's actually not many of them and having to actually go back in. So it's really interesting, I think, from my perspective in a brand and comms communications world is because they've got such a amazing brand itself and customer loyalty with regards to it that they can actually impose that on customers that they, you have to go back into them and yet customers will still go back and still love them and I've still got an iPhone even though you have to hmm. go through that experience it's quite interesting yeah yeah that's um, when you you know when you look at a company like Apple and uh, had a Microsoft uh, Surface product recently where it's had a fault now it's outside of warranty but it's it's a bit like an iPhone and there's very little you can do to surface it right mm. uh, the Microsoft Surface is, is mm. basically you know, I think um, iFixit gave it a 1 out of 10 on the repairability <laughs> scale like yep. you know there's there's Really, nothing. Nothing you it's can the do with it. Commodity once it's broken, throw yeah. it away. Yeah, really messing it up. It's got a faulty, uh, faulty uh, hard drive, and so yeah. Last week it was turning on. This week it comes up with a flashing drive light in the corner. Um, 
and yeah, these I mean these companies make a fair bit of money. You would you would think that they okay. could uh, deliver a good result. And look, I haven't uh, tried with Microsoft yet to see what their response will be. But <laughs> uh, and and I think most people get generally get good service from from mm. Apple as well on a repair yeah. front. Um, they usually give you global service as well. I'm, I'm, yeah. I haven't heard of having to go back into the the store with them. I've you know found that they're they're usually pretty good. You bought a yeah. product in another country and and so on these days that uh, that they're pretty flexible in those yeah. regards. But yeah. Uh, yeah, they probably could afford to give uh, give out new phones, couldn't they? If you've uh, you've got a faulty one, I think so. Particularly if it had been, you know, within a year or anything else, you would think that um, there was something in it there. Yeah, doesn't Samsung do that? I'm not sure. <laughs> That's an interesting question. <laughs> yeah, I can't I can't remember what uh, Sam, whether Samsung use refurbished phones. I'm when they I, went I, I don't, the I, don't th- I don't think that they generally do i think they would probably give you a a new phone if mm. you've got a um uh, a faulty one could be wrong on that front so um don't hold me to that um now on other other topics new gadgets uh one we've just been looking at in the room next door is samsung's uh flip which is sort of a it's a it's a big touchscreen tv and it's really designed to be a smart whiteboard um what were your what were your impressions? Any uh, any thoughts? Um, yeah, it's a big TV that's built to be a big whiteboard, I guess. <laughs> no, it's it's. I mean, it seems to be a good bit of technology, and there's a whole bunch of these things coming out. Microsoft's got one, Cisco's got one, even, um, and some of them integrate with cameras and let you do video conference video conferencing straight off them. Um, but as a digital whiteboard goes it seems pretty good you know you can draw on it in different colors you can have different screens that move backwards and forwards export and import um to usb or drives or off your phone for example when you're using your phone was it as an android phone wasn't it yeah so you can um it's got um it's got uh, near field communication yes. uh, in it, so you can just tap your uh, if your phone's unlocked. Uh, certainly, with you know the most of the recent Samsung phones, it seems to work. If your phone's unlocked, you can just you know tap it um, onto the the um, the particular you know section of the device, and it will instantly mirror your what's on your phone screen up onto the TV. Yep. Now, these sorts of you know, capabilities have been around for a while, but the way it integrates with the whiteboard is quite nice. So, if you've got a photo on your screen, you can then just do a little screen grab of uh, of that and drag it into a whiteboard so you can you know draw all over it yep. and uh, uh, you know utilize you know whatever's coming off your phone which is, mm. uh, is is quite nice it does seem as though this device is very focused on being the super simple whiteboard where you can walk into a meeting room and you know you've probably seen these situations or been in them where you walk into a room there's a whole lot of technology in the room and nobody uses it because it's, it, it just ta- it takes too long to get it working, <laughs> yeah. or it doesn't work. Yep. And so what I like is you do, you know you can just walk in and you know it's got a proximity sensor, so if you've got it on, it can just pick up that you're there, or you pull out the the pencil from its holder, and uh, you know it just wakes up and you can start drawing on the screen. So that was quite nice. Mm. Uh, and this fact that you've got. You know, we, we have um, the printing whiteboards where you can, you know, you can scroll around a little bit and they're a little yes. bit bigger than just one, uh, I was going to say one screen full of information, but, <laughs> you know, one board full of information. Yeah. Um, yeah, but with with this, yeah, it can have, I think, you know, 20 or, or more, more sort of screens in, yeah. in one, you know, file, uh, which is, is probably convenient in some situations where you need to actually capture a, a lot of data. Uh, but I guess that they're having to compete with just how easy it is these days to use a normal whiteboard 
and a smartphone to uh, to, to, to you know capture uh, you know, capture it. So you know from that perspective, it does have to I think be super easy. So yeah, you know, to sort of tick that box. I think the simplicity of it is the is the big driver um, for this one at least. Do you know if that's the only size screen that they come out with? Or they do uh, I think they've initially launched this 55, yep. and they may launch other ones, but they haven't announced any other ones yet. So no. I would say if it, you know, if they get the sort of traction in the market that um, that, that they're hoping for, and it'll be a you know it's a sort of high end uh, product. It's not the sort of thing that you're probably going to see in a lot of schools no. or uh, you know even small businesses that you know just have a, a meeting room that gets to ca- used occasionally, mm. but in corporate environments or you know, heavy use rooms. I imagine that could be uh, could be useful. And if they they get that pickup, then they'll probably look at other other sized um, screens. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the benefits would be that you can save the screens. You know, what you get in corporations is that you have a whiteboard in a room, and you just have a meeting in there. You draw on it. And then somebody else comes in for the next meeting and wipes it all off, and then you've yeah. lost it. And you, you may have taken a photo of it, but that's just a photo representation of what was there. You can't add to that very easily. So being able to save the boards that you have securely, then you can go back into them and keep editing as you go forward. Mm. Where we work, we spend a lot of time whiteboarding. We have, you know, we write on Windows and everything. Um, so that's why I was asking about the size because the size of that one is, is good, but for the, some of the technical diagrams that some people in my team do create and <laughs> not dream quite up. big enough no nowhere near yeah. big enough yeah we're yeah, you know yeah. we're talking seven foot high walls covered in diagrams and yeah i think the ability for it to aid collaboration is pretty mm. amazing mm. I think, mm. you know having something that multiple people can stand around and actually to draw and edit and scribble over the top of easily rub out without getting anything on your hand mm. um yeah. i think it's really yeah yeah, tool. and they talked. Um, yeah, I also like yeah how easy it was just to push up from your phone onto yes. there. So not really get up for video conferencing and so on because no camera in it. But there are some scenarios where you know that would be quite a a simple scenario if you had you know, a very small group and somewhere you could you know prop your phone where you just tap it suddenly mirrored your phone onto there and then you prop your phone up and you could have you know two or three people looking at a nice big screen for a you know mm. a, a, a quick and dirty sort of video conference absolutely uh, but not really a sort of core uh, core function so yeah it'll be interesting to see where it goes they've talked about there being some um, new software updates coming through new features coming out over time and it's my impression that one of those that's in the not too distant future uh, will allow you also to mirror what's on uh, what's on the the flip onto another you know say a bigger screen or you know, projector yep. uh, that that sort of thing which uh, yeah cool. could be useful mm. in you know really big educational environments or you know, mm. presentations and so on. Now another burger robot. Does the world need uh, a burger robot? Is that literally a robot to bring burgers to you, or is it a robot that makes burgers? <laughs> That's actually a really or good Or a robot question. made out of burgers, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> mm. So we heard about Flippy a few months ago, which was uh, a, a robot that you know flipped flipped burger patties on a, on a grill, so a reasonably uh, limited function. And uh, the 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 media uh, stories at the time basically said it went into a, a restaurant in um, in California and was retired within a day for reasonably unclear uh, reasons. Now what we've heard about is another um, California company. And their machine is something on a whole new uh, level, which basically does the whole burger making process from woe to go. 
except it doesn't deliver it to you. So, uh, <laughs> so it would sit in a restaurant, and um, they're going to launch, you know, I think, a, a new restaurant you know that will use this technology exclusively for making its uh, its burgers so <laughs> is this the beginning of the end where all our jobs are going to be replaced i'm sort of on the fence whether it's a good thing or not to be honest i i when i was at high school i worked at mcdonald's so i spent you know two years flipping burgers myself and you know do we do we want our burgers made by a robot or a greasy haired 16 year old um, <laughs> she should know what I'd pick <laughs> <laughs> you're wearing the hairnet <laughs> um, I the future's going robotics isn't it eventually if we well, how, like, can you, how can you stop it right because if when you know McDonald's are looking at this there's going to be a point in time oh, where the robot having it made by a robot is going to cost them yeah, a quarter of the price of what it costs them to have a human make it. Yep. Uh, I don't know. Can we cause enough of a, um, you know, upset at at this stage to um, you know scare these companies off? Or I don't think just, yet. This is life. Mm-mm. I think at the moment this is just um, this is the beginning, isn't it? It's the beginning of the revolution, if you want to call it that, where robots are starting to get further and further into different areas of of our lives. Um, now they're making burgers. Is it is it actually a cheap way to make burgers at the moment, or is it quite a gimmicky thing that you're going to a robot burger store um, to buy your? Because you could watch the robot, right? Do all the work. I'm guessing. Yeah, I almost look at it as kind of you know, one one door might be shutting on the opportunities of having that as your career, and then another door's opening with regards to. Um, uh, your future in technology and actually you know being part of that generation of creating the robot as opposed to flipping the burger patty so I think careers are just going to continuously change and evolve as we go and mm. this is just but one example for it. Going back to Amazon it's how they automated all their all their stores in America to make it cheap and fast and cheaper didn't mean that we're you know in America they're not employing more people to run Amazon you know if there's something about if they um all the, all the products that Amazon sold were sold by your normal mom and pop type stores in America that they'd be employing a hundred times the amount of people to be able to run those mm. so you're you're saving a lot by um, automating which is what this robot's doing yep. but at the same time at what expense yep. when it comes down to uh, it also keeps prices down for the consumer though so well it's true <laughs> that's what I was going to say do you want to yep. work in a burger store or just you know have really cheap burgers to buy mm. because they're made by a robot yeah, it's a it's an ongoing change, isn't it? The, mm. the you know the impact of technology, and it's not going to stop any no, time soon. I don't no. think we want it to stop. Think how many people have all got smartphones in their hands right now. You know, you We're want all. it to evolve and change and be able to get things that are new. True. Then well, it leads into the evolution of education. Then because we can't, well, is it you, you can't. We don't know right now what it is the job, what the future's jobs, what the jobs of the future, as yep. I should say, what the jobs of the future are going to be. So, how do we teach people now for the for jobs that we don't know what they're going to do? Um, skills that can be, you know, yeah. used in multiple Transferable ways. Transferable skills. Yeah. So, the ability to learn rather than Attitudes, learning something mindset. specific. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
on on that front, you know, do either of you have any thoughts on where what education might look like? No. You know, when we when 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 we get further, you know, much further down the track, we had the uh, announcement. It was a la- last year of uh, education being able to move to online for you know some people or part of their their studies for their schooling. Mm. And I remember a, a chat with. Um, one of the journalists at uh, at, at TV3 and uh, um, yeah, she she was saying to me, oh Paul this is terrible, this, oh how bad this is and I said, oh, when I was a, a youngster I spent some time uh, travelling with my family and we went we used uh, the correspondence school which was, you know, yep. uh, I guess the, the, the closest equivalent of the day uh, you know, and I ran through how we, we really in, enjoyed it, we could get through our schoolwork in a much shorter time because you just had to focus on you know what was what was relevant to uh, to you and uh, that these days I you know I I actually do a, a lot of learning and and I do it online and and that's how I uh, you know that's how I get educated continually so mm. um, you know it's it's it is kind of hard to figure out quite where things will will head but you imagine that technology has got to have an increasing role over time. Absolutely will. Um, there is a drive at the moment coming out of NZQA, the New Zealand Qualifications Authority, um, to online examinations, uh, which is something they've been trialling over the last number of or last few years. Mm. Um, and they haven't got to the final point yet. Um, and that's, you know, if we're going to online examinations, th- does that mean we still need to have examination centres? You know, in the old days, you'd have 300 kids turn up to do in my day school C or in the modern day NCA level one um, English exam where you sit in a hall and you get given a piece of paper and you you know everyone's quiet and rustling papers and opening um, see through pencil cases and things like that all the different rules that you had um, through to now it's all if you if you're doing it all on your laptop online do you need those three hundred children to be in that in that hall set up for it could you do it anywhere. And then leading on to, you know, anytime, anywhere sort of examinations Mm. with its own. There's massive problems with that, of course. How can you ensure that the person behind the keyboard is the person sitting the is the person who's logged in to sit the exam? (laughs) Um, And there's multiple ways you could try and solve that. But there's a massive privacy concern that goes around with that as well. So there's lots of ground to cover on that one. Mm. 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 I think the, the biggest challenge is as schools use digital technologies for their day-to-day learning every day, the contrast to suddenly sit down in an examination and suddenly write madly for three Mm. hours, two hours or however long the exam is, it's just so different to actually how they've been learning throughout the year and that's ultimately one of the biggest drivers is to make sure that actually the way in which the children are learning and engaging the whole way through is then equally reflected in the way in which they are deemed to pass or fail um, when it comes to, to learning. Yeah, we were at a school a couple of weeks ago and we were going through a design process with some of the teachers that were there um, and we asked them to you know, fill out a form that we gave them and they literally had to ask us for pens because they were like, we don't have any pens. We do everything on our laptops. They're a yeah. fully immersed you know, technical school um, which, and they've got a great model um, but none of the teachers that had come into the room had had brought a pen with them, an analog stylus, as they called it. An analog stylus. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about what Network for Learning is, you know, is is focused on now. 
Um, that's obviously one of your engagements. You must do all yep. sorts of bits and pieces with the schools. But what sort of the bigger picture view of, of why Network for for Learning exists? Because you know, I've had a few interactions uh, over the years. I think you've been around about five five years or, or so. Yep, um, but yeah, maybe you can fill in myself and our listeners on uh, you know what what your mandate is, what your role is, and um, and how that's all going. Yeah. So we set up 2012. Um, set up ultimately with a sole purpose, really, of, of delivering or leveraging the old fastball band that was being rolled out and getting that into all the schools throughout the country, um, and then having a management of that to ensure this equal, fast, reliable, safe internet that's going into all the schools throughout the country. And I think as as we've got got to that point and we've rolled that out to all of the schools, um, it's now looking at, you know, we... we Removed, I guess, the biggest challenge around that equity of access, and now we've we've kind of pushed the problem further down right into the school. And so, really, I think our mission and vision is all about how we can take that connection and that ability right down to the learner. So it's not just to the school and to the school gate, which is ultimately where where we've focused today and still focus now. It's about ensuring that that learner can learn anytime, wherever they are, and and what are the challenges that are. You know that we have to overcome to get there, um, and you know we are but one part of this pie. I think that's probably the biggest thing. Um, the the schools themselves, as the customer, you know, how do we get them involved? Because what we ultimately need to deliver is something that's going to work for them. Um, but equally, you know, we've got government. We are a government-owned company, so we need to work really closely with them. And then those in the technology, the sector, um, you know, you do do a huge amount of work in with Chorus Spark. Yep. all of our key partners to make sure that this works because we've all got to work together to do it. So Right, yeah. I mean, last week we were having a little chat around your, your recent announcement of you know, trying or doing some trials with you know, distributing internet broader than just all the schools, uh, getting that into, uh, into homes of, of mm. students. So um, what, is, what does that look like? What does that trial look like at the moment? There's, there's a number of them that are uh, underway and um, we are... Not late to the game, but we're not the early adopters. There's there's people that have done done this before us. Um, some of it is leveraging the ultra fast broadband connection that the school has, and then using Wi-Fi technology to spread it across the local community, um, which works mostly well. Um, it's not a it's not a perfect solution, but it's it's a good cost effective solution. So how do you do that? Do you have to have some sort of mesh, you know, a- Wi-Fi network, so that basically one you know one connection can forward onto another and so on. Absolutely. So uh, at a very basic level, it's a lot of um, access points on top of power poles uh, spread across the spread across the community, um, ensuring that you know we're getting megabit connections into these into the houses nearby. And I saw Chorus listed as a partner, yes. which you know, I thought was interesting because, of course, this would be competing to a degree with them wanting to sell a you know, physical connection into, uh, into every home, no, no doubt. Yes. So um, the, the announcement that was made um, last week, wasn't it, around the Taka Trust and Narata Street School down in um, Nainai, um, is uh, is with Chorus as the major partner and it's the second trial we've got with them we've got another one operating down in Christchurch and we're looking at two different models for how to get the internet into the schools uh, into the homes I should say um, I'm not sure how far we can go down that route of yeah. discussing what's going on there's a whole lot of NDAs and stuff right right well, we don't want to get you into, into too much trouble no, only no. a little bit of trouble is, <laughs> is fine it's um, ultimately <laughs> around testing different technologies yeah. um, because at the end of the day the 
what we're all about and what ultimately the government is all about is about removing the barriers. So regardless of socioeconomic, regardless of where you live throughout the country, it's about ensuring this um, that every learner has the opportunity to succeed. And, and so that's where this sits. That's what's so important is how, how does this what technology is available to help to solve that yeah. and equally we need to solve numerous other things when it comes to that but oh, this is absolutely. but one opportunity and it's working with um, local government as much as it is with, with the um, with government itself central government so we need to work together to look at how we can go about solving that mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, the major concern from our point of view is that we've got the remit to make sure that students access to the internet is safe and secure um, and it's one of our monikers that we use Um Safe, as in they, um, we, f- we filter the solution, we filter their traffic so they can't get inappropriate material, they can't get to um, non-educational, if you want, material. Um, but at the same time, secure that uh, you know malware attacks and other internet nasties can't get back into where they are. So our remit in this and all these trials that are going on, because we're just as Susanna was saying, we're just one of the one of the pieces in the puzzle, um, is to handle that part of it. So we've got chorus that's looking after the connectivity bit, how to connect the students back into a network. Um, um, we're looking after the identity bit to make sure that the students, the learners, can be identified, so we know who they are, because obviously we don't want this network that we're pushing pushing into the community to be used to do your average internet browsing because you know that's what we have isps for yeah um right so apparently. so from you know chorus perspective it wouldn't displace them putting uh, putting connectivity into homes and no and so on no, no exactly. I, I mean it, it's interesting you know, last week we did d- dive into it a little bit and you know i guess we we talked about that uh thing of you know at what point does internet connectivity be you know like getting power and you know water yes. to a to a home right in terms of just how important it it is and you know what are the disadvantages for uh yeah for those kids who don't get access to uh to internet other than when they're in the classroom yeah i think there's a belief well i have it at least that internet access should become just another utility in a house so that when you move in you've got your water you've got your electricity your gas everything you need to have to be operational and the same as you move in your electricity is already on you ring up the electricity people and say i'm going to start paying for it from now and here's the meter reading um you could do the same thing with internet the internet could always be on inside a house in some way albeit probably a very um minimal amount of internet you know nicely shaped down so that you can get to government sites or you can get to your isp sites to be Mm -hmm. able to buy your 100 meg or one gig or whatever connection that you want it to be but you know it should just be a utility it's it's ingrained in every part of what we do these days um i don't see it as a there's no need for it to be a special case thing anymore yeah, well, certainly uh, where we've got ultra fast broadband, and you know, it's mm. it's very very easy to to deliver it. It's uh, that's for for sure compared to how complicated things used to be. It's certainly getting getting a lot easier. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's that's an interesting discussion. I guess it, you know, if you drilled in and looked at different parts of the world, there are obviously other parts of the world where you know it's a challenge just for you know people to find shelter and so on. But you know, here in New Zealand, we hopefully can can get that piece right and <laughs> and then uh, you know get uh, get get people connected so that there's a reasonably you know fair and, and level playing field for, uh, for for youngsters. So I think that's, that's yeah, exciting. And that's what Infrail is all about. To be honest, we are here for the equitable part of this we we look at your inner city schools and all the benefits that they have from being part of a big city and then you look at your small rural schools and look at the inequality between the two 
um, from our point of view, every learner should have the same opportunity as, as every other learner. So why why not use this to build that equity up? And that's where the managed network came from. This yep. inner city schools had fast, cheap, competitive internet access, um, and the rural schools either had none or very slow, expensive. Um, we're hopefully raising the bar across all schools in New Zealand so that we can uh, assist learning capabilities to, to to thrive. The next step of that is to take it out of the school and, and make it focused on the learner rather than the bricks and mortar of the school. So get it closer to the classroom um, and then to where the learners are and then even outside of the school campus itself. Yep. So looking at the, um, at the landscape across the country, it seems like most schools now have fibre connectivity. I guess there's there's maybe a, there's a small number of sort of e- e- exceptions <laughs> where yeah the fibre hasn't quite got to um, yes uh, got got to their little little spots and um, you know I don't know what you've got in terms of connectivity and the, Chat- the Chatham Islands for instance. Yeah, they're so, part of us. Yeah, 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 you know there, there are different challenges I guess in different you know lo- localities yep. in terms of what sort of speeds you can you can get. But um, uh, it seems like the very large majority of schools have um, joined Network for Learning because you, you basically give them free internet access, don't you? That's fully funded. Like fully, fully, fully funded, funded internet, the term. Yeah. yeah, and that's <laughs> yeah. for our state and state integrated schools. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, um, so there's some that are on the edges that are really just, it's just waiting on fibre to reach those areas or there might be some that, that end up outside of the, the fibre footprint. Um, it's interesting. There's RBI two coming up now, so where that reaches out to will be interesting to see. We've obviously we've had our input into um, into that process to say what we think or give our inputs about where we're missing. Um, it would be good to get every school on fibre to make it again a properly level playing field, properly level, proper level playing field. Um, but you know, it's it's out of our hands that part of it. So we do the best we can um, for this for every school. Yeah, I guess there's some cost considerations that will be coming in mm. there, uh, con- you know, con- considering um, those things. But uh, right now, is it is it, it's a very very high percentage that have got um, oh, got fibre ninety eight yeah. point something. Yeah, yeah. Our yeah. target for yeah. next year is ninety nine point six. I think. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. So so looking ahead in terms of what you know what the focus for you is, there's obviously this, um, you know, trying to connect to the actual you know students and and deliver that that connectivity um what are the other areas i remember uh, earlier on there was quite a big focus on having your own sort of unique content that um that was sort of delivered you had a portal and so on i can't i don't know too much about that is that still a is that still a thing no, so at the moment, our so we've just recently um, pulled together, I guess, our future focus for the next four years. Now, ultimately, that um, we have got the new government, uh, so we take direct, we've been taking a bit of direction from them, and ultimately, where we are looking to direct our uh, focus of attention and, and and I guess our resources um, top down because they're. We don't have a lot of them. A uh, smallish company to be able to do that. Um, so our focus right now is on is on making the managed network connect, con, um, connection smarter and safer. Um, you know, technology has evolved, so it's absolutely where our focus of attention is at the moment. Um, and then, as what we've touched on, it how do we actually now take that connection right down to the learner? So from from our company focus and objective, that's that's ultimately where we're going for and what what our mission is really. Hmm. We've we've we have got an initiative at the moment to 
look at upgrading every school to one gig. So at the moment, the allocation model for their internet is based on the size of the school, um, which is a good starting point. You know, if you've got 100 students, you don't need more than a 100 meg connection, for example. Um, I can't remember exactly what the allocation policy was because it was old and we've thrown it away. Um, but we, and we did upgrade schools as needed. So as they started becoming more mature with their internet usage and using more bandwidth, we would just keep tracks of that and every month look at the reports of the schools and upgrade them as, as necessary because um, it is a fully funded service um, and fully managed. Um, but we've, we've recently been talking to our LFCs, uh, the local fiber contractors, or what's the C Companies. Companies, Companies, thank you. Um, and um, crumbs. And um, going through just a, a one gig allocation model to every school. Right. Oh, so yeah, that's good. It is. It's, it, it, then it's giving every school the amount of bandwidth they need as whenever they need it and making sure that you know everything that we do across the network can support that so we're, again working with our partners um, we need to ensure that the network is capable of surviving every school you know two and a half thousand schools across New Zealand all running at one gig at the same time um, so that's a bit of due diligence that's going on right now but you know to be honest, we've done it. We've upgraded 140 schools already to this one gig um, platform, and now we're just waiting on starting on the rest of them. Right, and I recall something some time back, and I can't remember where it had come from. Whether it was a school that was looking to this approach, whether it was Net for Work for Learning, or, or from somewhere else. Um, but the idea of actually putting getting fibre to individual departments or areas of a school. Yep. What's what was that about? Um, that's an initiative that um, again we've been looking into and it's instead of having complex switching environments inside of schools um, it's using um, gigabit passive optical network technology to deliver that fibre connection directly into a classroom or into a, into a room. Um, it's in businesses already so it's proven technology that does work. Um, it removes the need to have complex switching environments inside of schools. Obviously it's not a, it's not a be all and end all because schools still have infrastructure on site. Um, printers for example and it creates more complexity around how you then contact a printer if you don't have any switches to control your traffic. Um, but it is an investigation that we're underway with um, to see how useful it is and how cost effective it is on the big scheme of things, it looks good as a point solution, but you've got to think of everything else that sits around it as well. Right. So would that be, um, that's not a case of delivering an individual uh, circuit from, say, Chorus or out the local fibre company into individual rooms? It's more splitting it up once it once it gets to a school? or Depend- you could, Then you could have, you know, you could have gigabit to every classroom. So if you've got 20 classrooms, you've got 20 gigabits for a school. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> I think Chorus would like that. Um, <laughs> It is pretty much that. Depending on the size of the school, um, you know, there's different ways of getting the fibre in. We could have a 10 gig fibre to the school and then have that fibre split through a, you know, a splitter um, to do one gig to each classroom. We could do that. Yeah. Um, that's part of what we're going through at the moment. It's a, it's a bit of work we're doing in conjunction with the Ministry of Education to see what the future looks like, um, especially with new school builds coming up. Would it make it easier and just less complex you know mm-hmm. in the in the end schools are very good at teaching and you know majority of schools they don't need to have to worry about the technology part of keeping their school operating just like they don't need to worry about how the electricity gets in or the water gets into mm-hmm. the school how about we make it that easy for them so that they can concentrate on teaching our children and we can concentrate on giving them those the means sounds pretty good and and look i think it's fair to say that 
requirements for internet are going to keep going up and oh, yeah. and you know in every every environment i and, think um, and schools at least as much as uh, yeah other other uh, typical locations i would imagine yeah will need more and more bandwidth march this year i think we shipped twice the amount of data that we shipped in march last year and i can't remember but it's probably it's in the multi petabytes of data across schools and it, you know, so that's literally double what it was the year yeah. before yeah that's great. Um, was there anything else that we needed to cover off? We think we've covered most of the bases as far as network for learning. Think so. Hmm. There's always a lot going on. Um, yeah. The, the main the main projects the managed network upgrade at the moment, um, and so that's kind of the combination that's both looking at um, how we improve from our. Um, from the safety perspective and so that's looking at the new technologies that we'll be able to be rolling out to schools so we're kicking off in term three so next term um, and then that's also rolling in the meant the upgrade to the data which is all part of that we're looking at what reporting requirements or reporting needs that the school would be looking to use so this is all very much in demand from them and um, what information can we provide them to actually make their job easier and to give them information you know, straight to them and direct to them rather than them needing to go and look for it themselves. Um, so, yeah, it's ultimately we just kind of want to play our role in making that job a little bit easier for them where we can. Give them some time back to carry on teaching. Mm. Yeah. And I imagine it's, it's challenging dealing with uh, young people. I'm just, you know, recollecting my school days and, you know, <laughs> kids uh, with technology, if there was a way to, you know, hack and, you know, break through firewalls and different bits and pieces, then, you know, kids would usually... You know, figure out a way. So, yep. you know, I, I imagine there's constant challenges in terms of uh, you know trying trying to uh, deliver exactly what you want and and not give people access to what uh, you might not uh, think is helpful to their education. Yeah, yeah. we've got uh, the good old uh, new age way of effectively ringing the fire alarm, which uh, happens in our digital world. Yep. I don't even know what that stands for. That acronym: Distributed Denial of Service. Yeah. So, and we get. Um, distributed denial of service attacks against random schools um, which some of it is attributed to the virtual fire alarm being pulled in a school just to cause disruption or for for bragging rights for example but we have fairly effective um, uh, mitigation technologies in place to make sure that it doesn't affect many schools Uh, a couple get through every now and again we see some fairly large ones come through which is hard to mitigate against but the majority we just clean them off and we'll carries on it's our job as if nothing happened <laughs> yep it makes everyone at work panic a little bit when it starts happening mm. and then everything goes back to normal yeah. yeah very good all right well it's been very uh very interesting uh thank you for joining the show no, thank you for inviting for us. us now where do where do we track you down online or either of you on twitter or are there any sort of you know ways people can get in contact directly or just through network for for learning sort of website yeah, so we've got um, so Network for Learning, um, Twitter and Facebook for LNZ. Um, and then otherwise, I'm, I, to be honest, I just stick to a LinkedIn and Facebook, Susanna Winger. What yeah. do you do? No, I mainly just, um, I even, I deleted Facebook off my phone a couple of months ago because it was doing my head in. Um, so I try not to use Facebook as much anymore. So I'm mainly just LinkedIn myself, um, Gerald Masters. Yeah. 
That's good. That's good. And N4L. That's the when when you see NZ. that abbreviation. NZ. N4L. NZ. That, right. Yeah. And number that, four. Right. That's talking about network for 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 learning. For learning. So, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Excellent. Well, um, thank you, Gerald and Susanna, for joining the show. That was all good. Thank you. Excellent. Um, thanks everybody for listening in. We will be back again uh, next week. We've got some interesting, uh, some more interesting guests coming up over <laughs> the next uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, so uh, so yeah, stay stay tuned for uh, for the next episodes. And I should mention, which I've been meant to mention last week as well, um, Google have finally uh, got their act together in terms of podcasts on Android. So you can now find podcasts through a Google search on Android and they will play through Google's sort of embedded uh, player that is now on most Android devices. And there is an app for that that you can find in the uh, Android store. So um, if you go to nztechpodcast.com uh, under our links there, we now have a link direct to the uh, Google's um to Google Podcasts as well as our other uh, links for uh, Apple Podcasts and third-party podcast players. All right, that's it. Catch you next week. See ya. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.